Hello, welcome to Gunfighter Cast. I'm your host, Daniel Shaw. This will be episode number 33 of Gunfighter Cast. In this episode, I previously recorded an interview with Masada Ayub and Gail Pepin, uh, representing Masada Ayub Group. This will be the first episode of a series of shows. Not sure how many this is going to be. Depends on how many uh, high-level trainers I can get to come on the show. And uh, we'll keep it going and see where it goes. Uh, right now, I have one interview recorded with George Hill, representing Crusader Weaponry uh, and Crusader Training. And then this one that you're about to listen to with uh, uh, Mass and Gail Pepin. I should have something out uh, in the next week also with uh, a couple other individuals that uh, you're going to recognize their names as well. And, uh, so just uh, stay tuned for that. This particular recording, uh, Mass and Gail, they had to use a laptop and just a built-in microphone with it. Uh, their side of the sound quality sometimes gets a little bit choppy, uh, but it's definitely understandable. So I uh, hope you enjoy the conversation and uh, take something away from it. Hey, welcome to Gunfighter Cast. On the show today, I have a man who needs no introduction, Masad Ayub. Hey, Daniel. How are you? Good. How you doing? Not bad for an old guy. And with you, you have the beautiful Gail Pepin. I do. Lucky me. <laughs> Hi, Gail. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, basically, what we're going to do is just uh, ask you guys a few different questions about you know your company. But before we get into that... I think I said the man that needs no introduction, but uh, you know, really, if you could give a little bit of your background, Mass and uh, Gail, you as well, and just you know, so people who, who have been living in a cave their entire life, they don't know who either one of you are, maybe interested for them to get a little bit of background information on you. So basically, uh, Mass, you've been pretty much either in civil service, protecting people, or teaching people how to protect themselves for your adult life. Uh, that's something close to the truth? Pretty much. Uh, became a gun writer in 71, uh, sworn in as an active part-time police officer in 72. Uh, over the years, it's been, I guess, 30, about 39 years now as a gun writer, 36 years carrying a badge, uh, 30-some of those years handgun editor for Guns Magazine and law enforcement editor for American Handgunner. Started doing the expert witness thing in 1979, and been a firearms instructor since '72. Uh, began teaching cops, and uh, started teaching civilians in 1981. That's a pretty decent resume right there. So, Gail, besides beating mass in you know competitions <laughs> on rare occasions, what, what is your background? What do you have? Well, I don't have extensive background. I'm a pediatric nurse from Chicago. I uh, haven't been shooting anywhere near as long as Mass, probably about, I don't know, 10, 15 years now. She looks better doing it. Got into competition. That. Took some classes. Uh, met Mass, we hooked up together, and it's taken off from there. That's great. You know, and uh, you're, uh, you kind of were being a little bit modest there, Gail, because, you know, you've shot a little competition, you know, me, I've shot one NRA match, and it actually got canceled because of bad primers, and it was a service rifle match. That's the most competition I've ever done other than, you know, hey, I want to kill you, you want to kill me, let's compete, okay, I win. Uh, but you, you're not, you can't just say that you've competed a little bit. I mean, you're, 
Well, I do, I do the Glock shoots, the GSSF, which is a really good time, and IDPA. She's the former Florida State Women's Champion IDPA and current Florida Georgia Regional Women's Champion IDPA. See, that was the point I was getting at right there. I was also, was it 2008, 2009, the IDPA National Trivia Champion. Uh, she was high woman at the National Tactical Conference last year. Oh, yeah. See, you're a winner. You just One who competes is just somebody who competes. You could be a loser and compete. But, you know, you've actually won things and become a champion. So that's what I was getting yeah. at anyway. Okay. And also, <laughs> and I'm also the predator of the Pro Arms podcast. The predator? The predator. It's producer-editor. I like that. <laughs> what, kind of what, personality. what kind of name can you come up for a host, producer, and editor? It's like for myself, that sounds cool like that. Whole predator? <laughs> no, no, strike that. All right, yeah, get back to me on that. All right, Mass, other than your um you know, your background that you just gave everything, what you teach in your company and uh just introduce your company and basically what you you teach, what you do, what your your basic philosophy is, I guess, what you want your students to come away from a class. Maybe this is a getting too long of a question. But uh you know, where did in that information, where did you get that from? You know, what basically what makes you qualified to you know, to teach somebody? Well, basically two questions. Uh, the Masada U group teaching, I think where we're distinct from some of the other schools is most of them are a major in how to use the gun and a minor in when. And we tend to be more, as we've evolved over the years, a major in when and a minor in how. In the early, uh, well, in the year 1960, I was 12 years old at the time. Uh, my dad said, if you want to work part-time in the family jewelry store, you'll need to carry a gun. And the laws in the state at that time allowed that, uh, so long as they didn't step outside the privately owned building. So I realized I'm a 12-year-old kid carrying a loaded gun. Uh, I'm the son of a man who survived a gunfight, and his dad had uh, survived a gunfight. He was the first generation of our family in our country. So by the time I came along, it was like, okay, yeah, how stuff goes, I guess you got to be prepared for it. Some of the customers at the jewelry store included the chief of police in town, a local judge, several attorneys, and made, we made sure that I sat down with them and found out how things went. And it was a real eye-opener. You know, even back then in 1960, there were lots of books out. Chick, uh, Chick Gaylord's uh, Handgunner's Guide, for example, had just come out. McGivern's writing from the 1930s and Fitzgerald's. And there was a lot of stuff on how to win a gunfight. There was virtually nothing for the private citizen on when can you take this damn thing out and when can you shoot somebody with it. So I remember thinking even in my teens, you know, people need to know this. and Somebody ought to write a book about it. And if somebody hasn't by the time I grow up, maybe I will. I spent a lot of time in legal libraries. And basically, when nobody had written one by the time I grew up, I did. Uh, in the Gravest Extreme was serialized in 1979 and published in 1980. Uh, I had been uh, doing some teaching at that time for various entities. And I wound up at uh, Ray Chapman's Chapman Academy, uh, taking his advanced course. I had met him at the 
IPSC Nationals in 1978 in Los Angeles. And we hit it off. We got along okay. And while I was out there, Ray said, you know, I read your new book, and I think it's stuff people really need to know. How would you like to come out here and do a class on that side of things? The How do you make the decision when to draw and when to shoot? And I said, sure. Well, it worked out real well. Uh, got some national attention. We were on ABC 2020 and that sort of thing. And there was a demand for it. And Ray said, you know, you really ought to start your own school to teach this stuff. So many people are carrying guns and they really need to know this. So I figured as a lark, yeah, it'll be fun. I'll teach you class once a month. And we opened Lethal Force Institute in uh, October of 1981. And within a year, it kind of became the tail that wagged the dog. And I've been doing that probably more full-time than anything else ever since. I left Lethal Force Institute last year and started my own uh, separate school, uh, Masaji Group. And that's where I do the majority of my teaching now, uh, except for... You know, entities like the Firearms Instructors Associations and National Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association. Wow. Uh, can I just sit here and you just keep talking? You know, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the problem with all those information, which was very, you, you answered about four of my questions that I have lined up. Um, but you hit on some very key points that I thought was very important. It's really easy for us to. You know, I think pretty much any idiot can go out that understands what side alignment is, understands what, uh, how to skillfully manipulate a trigger so the sights don't get disrupted or the sight picture doesn't get disrupted, uh, and how to breathe properly. You know, how to draw from a holster the twenty thousand different ways. You know, that's easy. That's the easy stuff. You know, the the harder stuff's inside of your head, the mental stuff. And that was one of my questions later on is, uh, you know, what separates your company from the other companies out there? And like I said, you know, any idiot can teach somebody how to shoot. Now, there's different levels of how well they're going to be able to teach somebody those fundamentals and how well they can apply those fundamentals themselves uh, and convey those into words and, you know, uh, examples so someone can understand it and, you know, different people's ways of understanding. But to go a little bit further and ask and talk about, you know, what, which was one of my other questions, what are you teaching, uh, not only when is it legal to, but when am I morally obligated? You know, when am I morally, or morally, when should I draw the weapon? Well, without playing semantics games, I, I distinguish between morals and ethics. Morals, you know, basically, I go to the root words. Uh, the root word of morals is mores. It is what is accepted in a given culture, a given society, in a given time. And that tends to be fungible. I'd rather go with ethics. Ethics are cornerstone values from the root word ethos that since the dawn of civilized man, it's been understood there are certain responsibilities and certain things that are forbidden. It's been understood if you attempt to violate another person's right to live, you've essentially waived and sacrificed your own. If someone tries to harm me, my child, uh, the woman I love, I will react with the appropriate level of force that that matches the level of threat. If there's a deadly weapon or a physical disparity of force that's so great it's the equivalent of a deadly weapon and likelihood of death or great bodily harm resulting, I'm fully prepared to use deadly force. 
And that is the values system I try to impart to the class. One of the, one of the big myths about this, one of the great oversimplifications, and you see it virtually every day on the Internet, is eh, if it's a good shoot, it's a good shoot. And I might have believed that when I was 16 years old. When I started getting into court and seeing how the criminal justice system, and particularly the civil justice system, bend the truth, uh, I discovered otherwise. It's only a good shoot after it's been adjudicated a good shoot. So a lot of what we teach is showing how to avoid pitfalls and trick bags that opposing counsel can twist around to look irresponsible and negligent, to make you look like Rambo, to trick you into saying something you didn't mean, or something that can be interpreted in two ways. And then they get much longer time and closing argument than you got on the witness stand to deliver their interpretation. And an example of basically what you said is uh, your pro-arms episode of uh, Pull My Trigger. And I guess to go more personal, you know, you use a New York trigger on your Glock that you carry. And my carry Glocks, yeah. Right. And uh, for carry, just for the sake of not having the single action or not having the light trigger like, or pass it around to the jury. Hey, fill this, this hair trigger he has on it. This thing is designed to kill folks. He was carrying this with the purpose of wanting to kill someone or something to that effect uh, that the jury may perceive because they don't know. Uh, they may not have that kind of intimate knowledge that you and I have about firearms. Uh, they might be easily persuaded to think that, you know, this guy does have, it's a, it's an assault weapon. You know, he was out wanting to hurt somebody. You know, he's got this gun tricked out so he can hurt somebody better. Um, yeah, you might get that. What you're actually more likely to get is them trying to twist a deliberate act of self-defense into a negligent accident. And the hair trigger just absolutely feeds into that. The, the reason is the, the other side knows that self-defense is a perfect defense. Okay, that If you can get across to the jury, I was in fear for my life. There was nothing else I could do. It was a last resort you're probably going to win, and that's not what they want. They also know that at law, there is no such thing as a justifiable accident. And if they can come up with a BS theory that you accidentally shot the guy when you held him at gunpoint, now they're into the deep pockets in a civil case. Now they've got much, it's going to be much easier for them to convince a jury that, say, Daniel Shaw made a mistake, was careless for one second. That convinced the jury that Daniel Shaw suddenly turned from honorable Marine to Hannibal Lecter. In the civil case, I don't know about you, but if somebody got a million-dollar judgment against me, I don't have an unprotected liquid million dollars laying around that they could seize to satisfy. But almost all of us have a million-dollar homeowner liability insurance. And if I've shot the burglar and they can come in with a theory of the case that I had him at gunpoint, but accidentally discharged the weapon and killed him, that goes direct into liability. Uh, if their theory was that I shot him out of malice, that would excuse the insurance company. Uh, any of your listeners can read their homeowner, homeowner liability policy, and they'll see a clause that exempts the insurance company from having to pay off on what is called a willful tort. Uh, the willful tort is a deliberate act by the policyholder that harmed another. So for them to get at the deep pockets of the insurance company, they've got to come up with a BS theory that you accidentally discharged the gun. 
if you've got a trigger that a layman would perceive as, oh my God, I handled it in evidence and I barely touched the trigger when it went off, the, the plaintiff's lawyer must be right. You've just handed them the victory and your estate and your reputation on a silver platter. They won't sue just the insurance company. They'll take everything they can get from you. And in some states, that means they can take your home, they can take your car, they can take your savings. Right. Saying that they're trying to prove that someone murdered someone. You know, he shot him out of anger, you know, first degree, second degree, whatever murder. You know, that has to be beyond reasonable doubt. Civil court doesn't. You know, and yeah. if it's, yeah. if it's, yeah. if you know. It's yeah, it's, it's not that complicated. It really isn't. And it's sad, but, uh, you know, kind of the way it is. Uh, you know, a question for you on that same topic that I've thought about after listening to the Pull My Trigger episode, and I went back and listened to it again recently. You know, I listened to it when it first came out, and then recently I listened to it again. Uh, my question is, you know, me, I teach standard response to threat. Two shots to the chest. Draw a weapon, find sights, press, press. Uh, depending on, you know, range of target, might be a control pair, might be a hammer pair. But, you know, that quick, it, it, it does a lot more things ballistically to the body, having two shots, and to the central nervous system uh, to increase chances of incapacitation. So that's what I do in myself when I train, and that's what I train others to do. If I use a standard response by two to the chest, do you think that's going to have any impact on that argument of saying that I accidentally discharged a weapon? Yeah, it might make it seem less likely, but the fact is, uh, particularly if it's the rapid double tap that I'm sure you're teaching your people, and I'm sure that you can deliver, uh, opposing counsel will be able to show that that is a pattern in unintentional shootings. It's not the most common pattern, but we do see it. What happens when the gun goes off by accident, the person is surprised. When they're surprised, startled response tightens the muscles. The flexor muscles in the hands are stronger than the extensor muscles. And it's not, it's not the majority of times, but it's also not uncommon to have an accidental double tap. The first shot goes by accident, the hand convulses in surprise, and the second shot follows immediately. That would be actually a, a decent argument because, you know, as an instructor teaching entry level, uh, rifle and pistol, I've seen it happen. I've seen people, I've, you know, a lot of times an M16 or an M4, will actually double fire because the disconnectors start to get wore down and it'll actually fire on when the trigger breaks and then on reset it'll fire again once you get a gun that's been really wore out. And a lot of our guns are pretty wore out, so that happens. When we do that, we got to change parts. But before I can take a gun to the armory and say, hey, look, it's double firing, or I shoot it myself to, to test to see if it's double firing, you know, I'll watch the shooter shoot. Sometimes the way they reset and the way the recoil is still happening because they're not properly following through, and they do get that surprise, they'll actually fire two shots without even realizing it. So, you know, I, I can definitely see that argument. It makes sense, if, especially for, you know, an entry-level shooter or someone who doesn't have a lot of experience. But no, I agree. All right. Uh, you've kind of touched on this just a little bit. I think there's probably more to be said about it. What are your thoughts on why an armed citizen uh, should go out and get some formal training from an organization like yours uh, or maybe even for a law enforcement officer to go outside of his department and get some formal training that may be a little bit above and beyond what uh, he's required to have. For the same reason uh, that I do, uh, we all have that gun because we know the day may come when we need to use it. The, the more skill we have, the more we've made the use of that gun second nature under pressure, the better a chance we have of surviving and protecting those who are counting on us to stop the threat. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. 
I've never worked for, I've worked for three police departments over the decades. I've never worked for one that had enough budget to give me as much training as I wanted. And I'm constantly going out and refreshing my own training. I have for many decades and I will for as long as I'm physically capable and mentally capable of carrying a gun. I think it's one of the responsibilities I have to the people who are around me. You know, the key thing that you mentioned there, the responsibilities you have to people around you. There's people behind your target. You know, there could be people beside you, around you. Uh, there's people that that individual that you're engaging may be trying to, to shoot at. You know, it, you want to stop it as quick as possible. You want to keep your rounds on target so they don't, you know, impact any innocent bystanders. Uh, there's a, so many things that come into play that need to be thought about and need to learn about and ex exposed to the best you can without the situation actually happening. Totally agree. Can I add something, Daniel? Absolutely. I was wondering where you are going to start what? being on the podcast. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who buy a gun and think they're safe because they have the gun, and they don't even know what they don't know. So if you don't get some training, you're, you're really cheating yourself because there's so much. I see so many people come to classes and say, wow, I never thought of this. I never thought of that. You know, people don't realize how much it's just not that simple. I should finish a sentence. <laughs> it's just that simple to buy a gun and know what to do. There's so many things that you haven't thought of. They just don't know what they don't know until they go to a class. The other thing is just looking at it in terms of economy. If it's important to you, whether from the sporting side or the self-esteem side or the self-defense side, to be good with a gun, you get there a whole lot faster learning stuff that's been established work from a professional who's, who's found quick, efficient ways to get it across to the students than you do trying to reinvent the wheel for yourself over decades. Uh, absolutely. You know, and you touched on it a little bit, and you did as well, Gail. If you go buy a gun, and I've heard this many times, yeah, I got a gun, I know how to use it. And their terms of how to use it and my terms of how to use it are probably two different things. You know, they know how to load it, uh, you know, wrap, put it around in the chamber and align the sights somewhat and put shots on target in a slow, methodical manner in most of the ranges they've shot on. But I, I think, you know, if you go get a concealed carry permit, and I, I, my concealed carry I got in South Carolina, my first one I ever got when I turned 21. Uh, I was scheduled for the class pretty much as soon as I turned 21. And I went and sat in a class for a few hours, then we went out to a range and shot, and I was really amazed at how ridiculously easy the course of fire that we had to qualify on to shoot was. Uh, when I went to Virginia to get a concealed carry permit, um, all I had to do was show my military ID. And I can tell you firsthand that there's plenty of people in the military who have no idea how to use a pistol, much less safely carry it. But we didn't require any class or anything at all. I just had to show my ID. And I think it's a, a massive responsibility. And I really can't you know, go enough emphasis on that. Uh, whenever you decide that you're going to put a pistol on your hip or on your side, and you're going to carry that to defend your family and defend the folks around you, that's a that's you're taking on a huge responsibility, and if you don't go above and beyond, like you said, Mass, you know you're you're selling everybody else around you short. Uh, you could even to the point compromise someone's safety. Uh, there, there's information out there. Some of it's not very expensive. My podcast is free. Your podcast is free. Uh, people listening to this obviously are tapping into that, but there's so many other things out there that they can do, and uh, and just maybe for a small amount of money 
shoot IDPA matches, uh, shoot IPSC matches, shoot some kind of match, and people are going to want to help you out. They're going to teach you. That's pretty much paying for a class when you go to one of those, from what I understand. I haven't been able to do it yet, but there's a lot of resources out there. Getting with a group of guys who know what they're doing, it's there's no reason not to tap into it and get some training. Informal training takes it a step further, because then you really have uh, you know a lot more background of your instructor teaching you and he's an instructor he actually does teach people or she sorry gail did it again <laughs> that's okay <laughs> but uh you know it's completely completely agree with that and uh we totally agree with you the uh, typical entry for a local match down where we are is somewhere between 12 and 20 dollars that will buy you five or six runs on scenarios that would have cost far more than that for you to set up and for you alone, would have taken all day to set up. Uh, you just pay the money, you go through it, you get to watch 10 other people go through it. Now, if one or two of those are master shooters, you're getting a free up-close-and-personal demonstration. And after they're shot, when you're waiting on the squad, a chance to ask them, hey, could you give me a couple of tips? Uh, how do you do that? And most of them are wonderful people who are eager to share that. Uh, we've got in our ho our home club kind of uh, First Coast IDPA in Jacksonville. Uh, we've got a handful of people that team pro armed kind of mentors, and they often shoot on the same squad with us. And we've watched that some of them in just a matter of months go from, well, my old mentor Ray Chapman's words, looking like a monkey having a meaningful relationship with a football, to winning their class. You know, if, if you come with an open mind, if you listen and you actually apply, you can learn a heck of a lot of the match. That's really very inexpensive. I don't want to call it training, but very inexpensive practice and very inexpensive learning opportunity. That's inexpensive fun. What, what does it cost you to go to the links to play golf for a day by yourself compared to going and practicing your sport with other people who can analyze what you're doing give you tips on your performance and tell you how they're managing the performance that they're achieving. You know, and I'm sure Gail and uh, maybe even UMass, I get a lot of emails from listeners asking, you know, how do I teach my wife? You know, how do I do this? And I want to teach my friends, some new guys learn how to shoot, but I've really never done it before. You know, as you go and experience more, you're going to learn yourself, but you're going to learn things that work for you. You're going to learn things that do not work for you. You're going to learn good examples to explain things that they're explaining to you. And, you know, it's going to help you out in not only your individual skills, but whenever you do want to take that new person out shooting or your wife out shooting or, uh, you know, a friend or whatever. If I have a Marine, you know, I said this in uh, another interview, you know, a corporal, a lance corporal who's a marksmanship instructor, he's been to coach of school, and he teaches the basic classes on you know fundamentals of marksmanship, I will sit in his classes, and I know the fundamentals. There's really nothing else I can learn about the fundamentals. But what I will take away from it, he may have given an awesome example that I have never even heard of before or thought of before, and now I have more tools in my toolbox for teaching someone else. Maybe his hands are smaller than mine, and the way he does it is different than the way I do it. And now I might encounter that problem in somebody else one day, and now I can teach them how the way that I know a few different ways to do that. So there's so much you can gain from it, not only from the individual's perspective, but you know later on, whenever you progress further, you're going to have more uh, abilities yourself to actually you know help other people as well. So it's kind of a constant circle where we, we gather knowledge and pass on knowledge. And that's one of the greatest things I've noticed about the whole uh, gun community is we do that. And I think that's great. It is true. 
Uh, for 19 years, I had the privilege of being chair of the Firearms Committee for ASLET, the American Society of Law Enforcement Trainers. Our motto there was Qui Dolce Dice, from the Latin, who teaches, learns. And my God, it is absolutely true. Nothing makes you the master of a discipline that re than the more than the realization that you are responsible to teaching it, for teaching it to others. It means you, you don't just have the superficials. It means you've got to know the core of every technique, the rationale of every technique, the history of every technique, who developed it and what did they develop it for. That might determine what person you teach to apply it in a certain way. And it, it just gives a greater depth. It's, it's kind of like a double-stamped coin. You know, it sharpens the imprimatur on your own knowledge. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in you don't truly know something until you have to teach it. And that would be a whole podcast all by itself because there's just so many things that come into play. Amen, brother. Well, that's, that's very true. I used to teach uh, in nursing. I used to be a staff educator. And, boy, I had to know that stuff inside and out before I go and teach that to the staff. Another thing we do, we do classes all the time. And some of the best things we found are these tactical conferences, like the one yes. Range Master has. Well, they have all different instructors from all over the country offering mini classes of what they offer. And you can go, you can pick and choose, and you can try things out. Maybe you want to take the full class another time. But I take every shooting class possible when I go to those things. So I can, there's always more to learn. You're always, always learning. Yeah, it, you know, it, it never stops. And even, you know, at your level, Mass, the way you are right now, standing here or sitting there uh, in your hotel room on the podcast with me, you're, uh, you're basically saying that, you know, as much knowledge as you have, as much of a following as you have, you don't have it all figured out. You're still learning. Oh, absolutely. I, I budget a few weeks a year to take training elsewhere. Uh, this year I spent a week at International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association. Now, I did teach there, but when I was not teaching, I was scarfing out the other classes like a shark in a feeding frenzy. Um, Gail and I both went to National Tactical Conference. And when I was not teaching, we were out there taking the training from everybody else every minute that we could. High Liability Conference? Yeah, well, Gail and I will both be teaching again this year at High Liability Conference at the uh, Pat Thomas Law Enforcement Training Center in Tallahassee. Uh, Gail teaches uh, how to train the, uh, the female officer in firearms. And I teach uh, stress fire shooting and courtroom survival. With, with emphasis on the, the role of the instructor. And when we are not teaching, we are going to be on the range, we're going to be in the gym, we're going to be in the classroom learning from others. Uh, I've had the privilege over the years to study under great champions like Frank Garcia, Rob Latham, Jerry Michelak, Ray Chapman, of course, uh, hosted a John Shaw class many years ago. And you, you don't attend those classes without learning something for yourself. It might be something that works for you, it might be something that you're going to say, okay, this is not ideal for me and the gun I'm using right now, but I can see it as something that might work for me with another gun or in another setting. So I'll put it in one pouch back in my bag of tricks. And if you're an instructor, virtually everything you see, unless it's complete and utter bullshit, which you're not going to get at that level of instruction, you're going to put it one more pouch back in your bag of tricks, and it'll be one of the emergency fixes you'll have for the special needs student. And if you do run across somebody who's teaching complete and utter BS, 
you crumple it up, you throw it away, and you know what? You still had a valid learning experience. Yeah, you know, that's what I always say. And take the meat, throw away the bone. Because, you know, you get around the wrong people, or there's sometimes you're going to gather that bone. You're going to just, you know, and you're going to sit there and you're going to think, wow, I can't believe I'm hearing this right now. But that's something, you know, later on in the class, you know, hey, pull aside and then have a conversation with them about them. Maybe you can help persuade them, or maybe not, and learn from each other, or maybe even go a little bit deeper into his thought process on why he had that, uh, what you considered complete BS. But, uh, you know, I've ran across that many times, and uh, it's just, it's kind of, it's hard to let go, but eventually you got to, you know, I guess, bite your lip and roll with the punches. I'm yeah, sure true. You, uh, I'm sure you've experienced that to a much higher level than probably I have. We have. Fortunately, when you got to the higher level, the, the BS kind of winnows itself out. But uh, the other thing is, all of us who teach learn from our students as well. Uh, I've had students who are thalidomide babies with fingers basically the length of only one digit on your hand. Uh, students in wheelchairs, students with only their left arm or only their right arm, and a great many with only one eye. Uh, the cross-dominant shooters, the shooters with different physical challenges, uh, each of them working with them makes you a better instructor and a better diagnostician. You know, that's a term that I don't think I've ever heard, diagnostician. But that is exactly what a marksmanship or weapons trainer is. You're constantly Absolutely. watching, evaluating, and you know, not watching downrange, not watching the target, but watching the shooter. And you see the shooter, and you're diagnosing problems, and you're giving them alternatives of how to fix those problems and then continue. It's a dynamic process. It constantly changes and it, it continues because when that one problem is fixed and there's another one that's going to pop up, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. You know, I don't even, it's a, uh, I, I love it and uh, I really enjoy it. And apparently you do too because you've been doing it for a really long time. But uh, that's well, a great I way of putting it. Uh, I could pick up from your podcast that that was a challenge that you were up to. And I'll tell you, you won a lot of respect from this end when that became apparent. Uh, there are a number of instructors out there that figure they are great, they are wonderful. The students have come to be their worshipful audience and become close to them. And that is more BS. Uh, you have it exactly nailed, and I saw that earlier in your podcast. Your job is to analyze the student's abilities, determine what the student needs to leave there knowing how to do, what weapon they're going to have to do it with and adapt them and adapt the interface between the man and the machine to make them capable of performing that mission with what they have to work with. And that, I think we both agree, is what really makes an instructor. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, I think we killed that question, which was pretty good if you ask me. And here's another, how important do you think it is, both of you, um, for an instructor who teaches how to survive a deadly force encounter to have actually been in that type or a similar situation? I think it's a big factor. Uh, it depends what you're teaching. Uh, there are a hell of a lot of firearms instructors who've never drawn a gun on anybody, but can teach you how to be very quick, very effective, and very confident in your skills. In my case, I've had the attorneys I've discussed it with tell me I've been in six cases where I was justified in killing the guy. And I managed to end it at gunpoint with them dropping their weapon or running away if I was there in a civilian capacity. I don't mention that a whole lot because, in essence, no one of us is ever going to be in enough situations 
that we can teach solely from our own personal experiential base. I had the privilege of being a good friend of Jim Cirillo for many years. And I'll tell you, I sat in on many of Jim's classes. I actually hosted his first civilian class. He would discuss a few of his many shootings, but most of his examples came from other shootings where he had debriefed the survivors, etc. And nobody knew better than Jim that no one guy is going to be in enough gunfights to learn it all just gunfighting before the odds run out and he's in the box where he can't teach anymore. Uh, that said, I spend as much time as I can picking the brains of guys like yourselves who've been in combat under fire and had to kill men under fire because that's a dimension I've not personally had. I've never, uh, there were a couple I was taking up the slack on the trigger and about to kill them, which is why they dropped their stuff and surrendered. But I've never had to go through the aftermath personally of having had to kill a man. That's why what I see my job as being the funnel. I, I get out there, I gather as much of this information as I can that they can't get access to for the most part, and I funnel, funnel it into them in kind of a concentrated form. Uh, certainly when we interview you for our podcast, that'll be one of the things we'll talk about with you. But you'll notice one of the things we do as much as we can in our podcast is interviews with people like Bill Allard, uh, Jim Cirillo's partner, the one guy in the stakeout squad who actually killed more guys in gunfights than Jim, uh, Bob Stash, OPD, 14 gunfights, uh, Jeff Hall with his amazing incident uh, in Alaska, and things of that nature. Andy Brown, who killed the mass murderer, uh, 70 yards away, his pistol against the mass murderer's AK and put a bullet between his eyes at 70 paces. There are things you can learn from men like that that you just can't learn anywhere else. Yeah, you know, you you talked about you had six encounters to where you didn't have to pull the trigger, but you did everything but. Uh, in my opinion, that was much more successful than actually putting the, the bullet on the bad guy uh, because you were able to somehow defuse the situation using, uh, you know, escalation of force or, or whatever it was, you know, verbal commands, the whole gamut altogether, you were able to stop that from happening. And in my opinion, that's more experience than I have because, you know, I've been in fights in Iraq where it was the decision to shoot bad guys had pretty much already been made. It was pretty evident who we needed to shoot and who we weren't supposed to shoot and who we, we would be you know, basically my, violating the moral, legal, and ethical uh, decision-making of, you know, who we should be engaging. And for the, I didn't have to experience that that much. There was small sometimes where we did have to experience that, and it was a quick, very fast decision where, you know, get on the trigger or not. But for the most part, you know, I, w I don't think that I'm qualified, uh, or I'm qualified, but I'm not, uh, as a law enforcement officer or a civilian who's actually, you know, been in an engagement where they got as far as you did, or they actually had to put bullets on the bad guy. Um, that's not something that I've ever had to experience myself. So my my type of gunfight that I was in, I feel that it's somewhat different than the kind of uh, situation that you were in. As you know, my enemy was was clear, and you know I had to put bullets on bad guys to save my life and lives around me, and you know continue the mission. And I, I see that as a little bit different, two different things. So. But they are, and God bless you for being able to do that. You, neither you nor I are ever going to know how many lives you save by neutralizing those threats. Uh, each of us has a piece of the puzzle, and 
Our job as instructors is to realize no one of us is going to have enough personal experience to teach from it. And that's why I see you gathering the experience from others. That's why I do it. That's why some of the most experienced gunfighters we've ever known, like Cirillo, Allard, Bob Stash, make a point of debriefing everybody they can find to see who's seen the situation different from theirs. So we've got something in the computer that says, given this particular stimulus, we've determined from experience this is the appropriate response. Makes sense. You know, Daniel, I think you can learn a lot from others. And just because you've been in a gunfight doesn't mean you learned anything there. There's plenty of people out there who have been in that situation didn't learn a darn thing. But we can learn from others' experiences. What I was trying to get at, I don't know if I came across it right. You know, I don't feel like that my experience was, I think it would be so much different than being at a gas station, pumping gas, and three individuals or two individuals walk up to me and they're trying to rob me. And I have to make that mental decision. Okay, I see firearms on these individuals. They're starting to draw. It's time for me to get on my gun, get it out of the holster, and get bullets on the bad guys, shoot them, stop this from happening, and save my life or, and my family's with me and protect them as well. I'm obligated to do this. It's... It's so much different than what I was involved in. And it's a lot more complicated, isn't it? I think the, the gas station situation is much more complicated than my situations. Um, and, you know, don't think that I'm, I'm saying as a, as a military member uh, and deploying, you know, it's not game on out there. Okay, go shoot whatever you want, do whatever. It's, we are so restricted in so many different ways. And if you can't justify what you've done, then you're going to end up in shackles. Uh, and you know, and not to mention that I don't think even that bad about it because I've always told you know in my Marines, you know, if you feel that your life's in danger, your life's in danger around you, or you feel threatening, don't be afraid to get on the uh, mother effing trigger. That's basically the way I put it to them because I don't, I don't, I don't want anybody to to hesitate here. But at the same time, I've never been faced with shooting another American in the United States and or having that decision. And I think that would be a little bit more complicated. Maybe even a lot more complicated than uh, the it situation might, I was faced with. It, it might be in the aftermath. Fortunately, if you can end at a gunpoint, there generally is no aftermath. Uh, none of mine. None of mine resulted in any legal problems to me. That said, what all any of us can do is give the student the formula for making their own decision. None of them will be in a situation that is exactly like ours. Uh, Daniel, is uh, I'm just guessing here because you and I have not discussed it, but is it safe to say that no two, or no, there, there was no one of your shooting incidents in Iraq that was exactly like any other in every single respect? Oh no, you know they're all somewhat different. Uh, I mean, there was many that were similar that were just kind of, uh, without using the term "fish in a barrel," because they were you know untrained but still trying to engage. Um, most of them were, were somewhat different, and you know some were close range, some were long range. Uh, but you know, in every respect, you can't really say that they were all the same, even though they were kind of under the same genre, I guess you could say. Is, is it safe to say that's why you taught your students different tools for different tasks and how to recognize which one was needed at a given moment? Yeah, and you know what? Uh, you can go a little bit further than with that. Not only just give them different tools for different different tasks, because. I'd be talking for the rest of my life if I sat a class in front of me and tried to give them every tool for every circumstance. So what I try to do when I'm teaching someone is to not just, I teach them multiple techniques, but I think the most important thing is for an instructor to do is to inspire thinking. 
inspire a thought process and a mental attitude so that they're constantly analyzing the situation. Uh, the situation is going to be very dynamic. Constantly analyzing the situation and constantly developing you know, new information and processing that in, for the decision-making process and deciding. You know, analyze, decide, uh, and act. You know, those things. Kind of like the, uh, the OODA loop. Yeah, totally agree with you. All right, let's move on just a little bit. You kind of hit this a little bit, but uh, what's the focus for philosophy? Uh, something that you ensure, like if a student signs up for you know a mag class, what are you going to do your best to make sure that they walk away with? First, safety. I don't know if they ever are actually going to need this, but I do know that for the rest of their life, they're going to be loading guns unloading them, putting them on, taking them off. Sometimes when they're exhausted or distracted or their hands are wet or they're hurt, and they're going to be doing that in the presence of the people they most love, the, the presence of the people they bought those guns to protect. So first, we give them a foundation of safety. Second, we get on the physical skill side, we give them a very strong foundation of marksmanship. We give them accuracy for control of the weapon, Accuracy first, then speed, show them how to accelerate, and remind them, look, we've given you the tools. It's up to you to stay sharp with them. Okay, we gave you the knife. It's up to you to keep the blade sharp. On the mental side of it, we try to, yeah, I'll use the word, we try to inspire them to realize that, you know, survival is not just a word. To, to understand what it is they're surviving for. They're surviving for their loved ones. They're learning these skills to physically protect their loved ones and perhaps one day save them from death. And it's imperative that they understand the, the responsibility not only to stay sharp with the skills, but the responsibility to understand that if they make a stupid mistake, that if they let their testosterone run away with their brains, they're going to end up in prison and leave their family behind bankrupt without the primary money earner. It's, uh, you know, so many people, the, the only exposure they've had has been TV and the movies. And the hero waving the gun around, the hero shoots the bad guy, the hero gets the girl, and the hero rides off into the sunset. And we remind them this is not something that's going to begin with a draw and end with a last shot when the last piece of brass stops rolling on the sidewalk. This is going to be something that the aftermath is, in some ways, going to be permanent. You will, in some small, subtle way, or perhaps in some huge, dramatic way, it's going to change you for the rest of your life. It's going to change the way other people see you. It may call down on your head a bunch of bogus lawsuits, even if it was the most justified shooting imaginable. But it will take you not just months, but perhaps years to fight your way through. And a great deal of blood and sweat and money. But to understand that all of that beats being dead. I tell them I want them to know how the law works and know the standards by which they'll be judged. So they will know at the very beginning how far can they go so they're not going to, at that last moment, draw the gun, hesitate, and think, oh my God, can I really do this, and die while they're thinking the other guy's pulling the trigger. I've been reading quite a bit about different uh, thought processes on that, and I don't know if you guys have read it, 
But there's a few forum threads about this, and I think it's under the Handgun Podcast. Somebody proposed a situation uh, in a restaurant or something, and the comment that kept coming up was that if I'm in the situation, I feel like I'm already dead, and I have to fight the best I can to to you know do whatever I got to do. And they kept saying that they feel like they're they've already decided in their mind that they're already dead. And then the legal get the legalities came into it. You know, what can you shoot this and that and uh, then their, their process was, or, or statement was that, like I just said, you know, um, I'm already dead. What do you think about that, Mass? Because, you know, to me, in my situations, I have never thought that I'm already dead. I had a, I wanted to live more than I've ever wanted to live in my entire life before. And I think that heightened my senses and, and you know, it, it made me better. And it made me rely on that muscle memory more than thought. You know, I, I, I identify and I decide, and then everything else is automatic. It's motion, you know, what the Japanese call it, without thought. You know, it just, it happens. And uh, I've never in, felt in my situations that, you know, I was already dead. You know, and I think that feeling that would be a bad thing. I, I agree with you. I think the only change it would be with me would be, I look down at my sternum and I see the the handle of a six inch knife blade buried into the breastbone and protruding, and I know I've only got a very few seconds left. Or I feel the impact center chest. I know I'm not wearing body armor, and I see a thumb sized gout of arterial spurt, and I realize I've only got a few seconds left. In those few seconds, I'm going to grab the son of a bitch who shot and stabbed me and take him by the throat and drag him down into the cave with me where he's not going to hurt any more decent people. Other than that, nah, you, you focus on the threat. You focus on survival. The history of this is if you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm dead, you probably are. If you're thinking, oh, my God, I can't die, uh, you probably can, and you're about to find that out. If you're focusing on, I know what to do here. Jeff Cooper's classic, wonderful comment, not, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening to me. It needs to be, I thought this might happen, and I know what to do. And now you focus on doing what you know you did have to do. You are the one who is going to be voted most likely to survive. That's a perfect point. You know, exactly my thoughts on it as well. All right, uh, Mass, what do you do to keep your curriculum current and to develop new curricula to address the needs of your students? Uh, I know maybe you have 20 just regular citizens who want to take a class. It would probably be a little bit different than 20 law enforcement officers that are going to take a class from you. What, what are you doing to you know, keep that going and keeping it current uh, or, or even developing for those specific needs of the specific class? Sure, at least a week a year, uh, take sampling advanced police training. At least a week a year sampling, you know, advanced civilian type stuff. Uh, I've been working now uh, for a while with Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network, and that lets me interact with uh, a good many attorneys. Uh, each case that comes in, and you know, they're they're constantly going across the desk, is yet another lesson. Uh, I stay current on the case law, and we're seeing actually some fairly positive developments for armed citizens there. And, of course, every, every class changes and every class is different. Um, each class, uh, you know, the class next week, I may have learned something I didn't know last week, and some of that may find its way into the class. Over the years, in general, 
I spend less time on the hardware and more time on the software. The hardware often is something the student doesn't have a whole lot of choice with, whether it's the uh, whether it's the business executive who has to carry a very small gun because it's absolutely imperative to his occupational survival that he not be seen to be armed by his colleagues and clients, uh, or the police officer who simply has no choice in the matter. He or she is issued a gun. Uh, as you well know, it's when you're teaching Marines, uh, you don't have time to say, hey, here's what I think might be a better gun for you. Because they're going to carry an M9 unless they're MEUFOC, or they're going to carry no pistol at all. So you focus on showing them how to get the best out of the M9 pistol they've been issued, which I have to agree with you is an excellent weapon. But I wish the U.S. government would issue our troops better ammunition for it. Uh, other than that, the, the changes tend to be evolutionary and incremental. They, they tend to be evolution, not revolution. Uh, that's interesting. You, you touched a little bit about your class and, you know, answering that question. Say I signed up for a mag class and I showed up. My gear, everything ready to rock. What should I expect from you and your staff? And uh, what would you expect from me as a shooter? Well, first, someone at your level coming in, I would uh, suggest to you that because in the first level, the shooting's fairly basic. We got X number of students who have never fired a handgun. We take them from, you know, ground zero, this is what we want for safety, to shooting a police-level qualification course. Our average nationwide is in the mid to high 280s uh, out of 300. So I think we're, uh, we're pretty good at getting people uh, really up to speed on, on shooting in a very short time. Um, someone at your skill level, if you ask me beforehand, I'd say you'd probably get more out of it if you're right-handed using a left-handed holster and shooting a mirror image like a newborn southpaw or shooting with your, your smallest concealed carry backup gun instead of your usual M9 because it might challenge you more. Uh, other than that, we basically different people see the same program in different ways. Uh, for the new shooter coming in, we're... You know, we will explain, let's say, uh, on the first day when we talk about core two-handed stances, here's the Weaver stance and how and why it was developed and by whom and what its great, greatest strengths are and its greatest weaknesses and what might be contraindications. And we do the same with the isosceles stance and we do the same with the modified Weaver stance. And we tell them basically, if you're a new shooter, one of the other of these three is going to work better for you. And we'll suggest you stay with that for the rest of the course as the program accelerates. If you're a shooter who is already very skilled in isosceles, we'll suggest you pick one of the other two stances, drill with that, and leave here with two different stances hardwired into your muscle memory where you came in with only one. Uh, the many instructors that we get in there, it, well, one of my surprises over the years was how many top-level shooters would come into the first-level class, not just for the legal side of it, but, you know, the busman's holiday thing, what you and I do, looking at how other people teach basic classes to see what can I learn from this instructor to streamline mine or maybe work with a given challenge, challenged shooter or something like that. And uh, it's it's been amazing, actually, how many instructors 
said afterwards, you know, I love cool stuff. We never got that in all these years. But I really, really enjoyed shooting this as a novice. It, it gave me a whole new perspective that I hadn't had for the last 30 years because I had forgotten what it felt like to be one of my students. And thank you for that. That really makes a difference. You know, we just had a class like that that was almost... Oh, God. <laughs> the class in Memphis was almost all instructors. Yeah, we, we had a bunch of Tom, uh, Tom Gibbons at Rangemaster uh, a couple of weeks ago hosted us for a MAG-40 class. We had a bunch of his instructors in there. Tom is one of the top instructors in the country, and he does separate instructor training with his own cadre. And like us... He encourages them, get out, see what other people have. I, I think he literally mandates all his instructors take a course from somebody else at least once a year. So we had a bunch of his people in there. We had SWAT guys. We had uh, at least one special forces guy, three attorneys, and it was an absolutely superb class. Uh, we It was far above average. The average uh, score on that was 294 to 295. A lot of 300s. Oh, tons of 300s. Yeah. And one, one thing I do to encourage them, we uh, when they shoot their final qualification, uh, the staff will shoot what I call a pace setter. Uh, principle in adult education, as you know, is if, if you're asking someone to perform a physical skill for accreditation, if you demonstrate immediately beforehand what's expected of them, it kind of gives them a mental image, kind of a computer graphic on board in the front of their brain what they're supposed to be doing. And if you're telling them they have to do it in a certain period of time, if they've seen you demonstrate it, it kind of sets the internal clock for the pace that they have to shoot at. And the deal I make with them is, look, if I beat you, you don't owe me a thing. I mean, you already paid for the class. But if you tie my score, excuse me, I'll give you an autographed dollar bill that says you tied me at my own game, and you beat my old butt, which I'm getting older, so it should theoretically be easier, it's an autograph five that says you beat me at my own game. I handed out 13 $1 bills in a 30-person class, to, uh, Daniel. And I'll tell you, I wanted to dance in the streets. Uh, I will confess to mixed feelings when I have to give out fives, but i got to tell you, there's no, no compliment a student can ever give an instructor higher than exceeding the instructor and the skill they've been taught. Well, gee, miss, what did you give your last five? Uh, I was a little redhead girl. I uh, <laughs> can't remember her name, but I, I remember her being terribly smug about it, Gail. Oh, was she smug? I can't imagine that. Did she post a picture of that on Facebook? I think she did. Uh, I did, oh, Daniel. <laughs> I saw it. Yeah. Uh, a couple John things. You... <laughs> Ask John Strayer about that. Uh, she nailed the match, and he's still waiting to hear the end of it. Every once in a while, there's that strange confluence of me having a really good day and him having a bad day, and that was one of those days. Yeah, and, you know, I, I got about three points because you guys touched on so many important things just then. Um, you know, you talked about adult learners, one thing. You know, I think that's also important for instructors to do. And, you know, I consider myself somewhat of a student of education because that's important. There's so many different things people have learned. You know, I know the, the gun side of things. And I know a little bit about teaching guns things, but there's so much to be learned from, you know, the adult education. You know, you get the androdoji and the pedadoji and uh, all that good stuff for, you know, teaching kids, teaching adults and stuff. And there's so much little things you can learn about techniques that make you better. I can't remember the, the other two points now. About, oh, the thing about 
Winning five dollars a man? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it was something that you said in there. Uh, or you know, no, no, it was a uh, mass. Um, you know, you said that. Uh, you know, the biggest compliment that you can get is for a student excelling over you or tying you. And you know, oh, yeah. you're exactly yeah. right. Uh, I, I apologize. I thought you were talking to Gil. Yeah, I, I totally agree. What what better compliment can you give a teacher than to exceed them in the skill that they taught? You know, and you said it's because not, you're getting it's like going, Yeah, it's, it's not like going golfing with your boss where if you beat him, it's a bad career move. <laughs> yeah. Okay? And any... Any instructor who's in it for the art instead of the ego uh, is going to be delighted. You know, maybe it's not that you're getting old and people are beating you. Maybe you're getting better at teaching. There you go. That's it. That's damn kind of you to see so, Sonny. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good way of thinking about it, you know. I find a way to justify my failures as well. I'm not saying that you're having a failure or anything. Just, uh, you know, it's always good. <laughs> I, I try to look at the right side, Daniel. It's it's not that I'm getting older. It's that every year there's more younger women. Nothing oh, old, nursing homes. <laughs> Ooh, good. We're not bitter. Okay, uh, where would you like to see Mag in the future? Relatively new company, uh, but you're you know definitely experienced and you know what you're doing. This isn't new to you. Just kind of a new name. Where, where would you like to see it in the future? Like, where's it going? Well, one thing uh, that we are changing is we're going to be working with ACLDN, the Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network, uh, more uh, this coming year in CLE courses, continuing legal education courses for attorneys. Uh, one thing that has driven me nuts in over 30 years of coming in to speak for people who did the right thing and are being falsely accused is that so few attorneys, A, understand the dynamics of guns and weapons, B, understand the, the human dynamics of violent encounters, and C, understand the strategies for defending wrongfully accused innocent people. Uh, most of the time, the system works, and it is the guilty guys who get accused. So you don't get a whole heck of a lot of attorneys who have a lot of experience defending wrongfully accused innocent men. So they apply everything they learn defending guilty men. Uh, they tell them, don't say a thing until your lawyer gets there. Well, fine. By the time the attorney gets there, the crime scene has been secured, the evidence has been gathered, and evidence that you might have pointed out that they missed or didn't realize was evidence is now gone forever. I've had cases, terrible, sad cases of innocent men being convicted. Their attorney told them, don't take the stand. It's never a good idea. Well, yeah, all their experience was defending guilty men. And if they took the stand, they'd either lie under oath, perjure themselves, and get convicted, and not incidentally open their attorney to a charge of subordination or perjury. Or they'd say something stupid, the prosecutor would pounce, and the guy would get convicted. So it's, it's obviously a good idea for guilty people not to speak to police and for guilty people not to take the stand in their own trial. But when you're the wrongfully accused innocent guy, Daniel, if you don't take the stand, who the hell else is going to tell the jury what you saw, what you perceived, and why you did what you did? Yeah, I'm not an attorney, and, but that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, it does. Sadly, to some attorneys, it does not. So we're going to be working more with sharing 
some of what Marty and I and some of the other people on ACLDN have learned over our collective decades of doing this and see if we see if we can't at that level do a little bit more good to keep innocent, wrongfully accused armed citizens and cops out of prison. I got a couple of questions for uh, actually more than a couple for the both of you that uh, you know you can just take turns answering. Okay. Just the usual questions I ask people to come on Gunfighter Cast. What is your favorite carry gun and why? Oh. Well, right now, it's my XDM two-tone. It's 9mm, and I love it. It's, got, it's just a regular standard trigger, regular standard... Uh, night sights. Oh, yeah, the night sights on it, too. It's, uh, I like it a lot. It, it's... The full size one, but it's pretty concealable, and it uh, it matches my competition gun. So whenever you go compete, you're basically practicing with a very similar gun than the one that you carry. Right. That's a, right. That's not a bad idea at all. Yeah, that one's all kind of back and tricked out, and it's got the lighter trigger, the one I compete with. But this fiber is optic. and fiber optic sights, and uh, it's essentially the same gun, only a little more tricked out. Gotcha. What about you, Mass? Uh, this training tour, uh, 1911. I'm wearing an Ed Brown signature model, Commander Lang. Uh, Trigicon night sights, G10 grips, uh, ARG holster, and uh, Winchester Ranger T 230 grain 45 ACP. Well, there goes another question. Thanks a lot. Oh, Ranger T. <laughs> <laughs> so, did your guys' Young choice Gary. in carry pistols, does it change? With the seasons? Oh, my, mine changes with the training tour. I, I change guns every tour just so I can stay in, you know, stay in, in form with the different guns the students bring. His changes with the wind. I'm a gun slut. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, it's all good. Uh, I, you know, I with, with me, I change depending on what the weather's like. Because, you know, I, I'm not a very big guy, so, you know, wintertime I have a hard time concealing. Or winter, summertime I have a hard time concealing some guns. Uh, wintertime I don't have any trouble at all. So, you know, I can go a little bit different in the, the wintertime than I can in the summertime. I was just curious if you guys had any impact on that at all. Not really. I used to. Uh, when, when I was younger, uh, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, I worked off three different double action generation three Smith & Wessons. My department issue gun at the time was a Smith 4506. And in the winter, I would carry that because it was easy to conceal under winter clothing. And in very cold weather, I've always preferred the 45. Uh, if the if the hollow point plugs going through the heavy clothing and turns into ball, I want it to turn into big <laughs> ball. Yeah. Uh, I had a uh, the model 4013, uh, the compact lightweight frame uh, in 40 S and W, and I'd wear that you know under a jacket in the spring or the fall. And a model 39-13 millimeter, and that's what I'd wear under an untucked polo shirt uh, in on the hottest days of summer. Those identical formats, each of them was a nine-shot gun, and the skills transferred very well. Uh, these days, it's you know every gun I test, I need to carry for at least a day because one of the I use, I'm usually testing carry guns, and one of the testing parameters is does it dig into you when it carries? Does it you know, does it catch on the clothing or anything like that? 
But other than that, every training tour that I travel on, I'll uh, I'll carry a different gun. You know, Sig, Beretta, 1911, revolver occasionally. Probably the Glock more than anything else. Uh, uh, spring tour, I did a Smith M&B. Uh, I like the XD 45 caliber. But again, I'm ballistic promiscuous, and nobody should model on me. <laughs> Mine is more what I'm wearing, though. You know, if you have to, you know. Well, you got, like, you're a girl. You got to properly accessorize, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to wear girly girl clothes, and you can't always carry a full size gun on your hip. So, you know, in that case, you wear a little, the little hurt. the little BB dress that you know barely goes down over your butt. And you got to put the uh, the thigh holster on, you know, with the little Walter PPK or something. You know, I know I know how it is. I mean, okay, barely goes down, but the thigh holster would not be clear on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, since Mass answered the, my next two questions in his first answer, like he keeps doing, because uh, he just pretty much covers everything all at one time. He doesn't leave anything else. Uh, but that, I mean, that's great about you. Just saying. Gail, what, yes. kind of, what kind of ammo do you prefer? Oh, I carry the Ranger T, the Winchester Ranger T. Uh, 127 grain plus B plus 9 millimeter. Yeah, that's my carry ammo. Mass, I've heard you talk about Spear Gold Dot before. I usually, I mean, looking at what they do in, uh, in Ballistic Gelatin and such, I've always been a fan of Spear Gold Dot. And I've heard you talk about how you and you like that in uh, some of your podcasts. Why do you, why do you think that ammo is a good ammo? And the reason I ask about that one is because that's one that I know quite a bit about. And uh, there's newer ammo that I want to learn more about that looks very promising. But I just, honestly, I don't know much about that. The Gold Dot is good stuff because it's worked consistently well and really across the caliber range. Uh, it's become the single most popular police load around the country. And that means uh, we've had lots and lots of feedback from it from actual street shootings. In the 40, I'm kind of partial to the 165 grain uh, at full velocity, 1140 feet per second. The 124 grain plus P to me is a very close second choice and almost interchangeable with the 127 plus P plus Winchester. Uh, New York City carries it. They've literally shot tons of people with it, and they are delighted with the performance. Uh, Las Vegas Metro has it. Uh, they issue gold dot across the board in their three authorized calibers, uh, 124 plus P and 9mm, 180 and 40, and 230 grain and 45. And this past January, when I was talking with some of their instructors, uh, they told me the 124 plus P9 is doing everything and stopping the bad guys as fast as the 40 or the 45. Uh, in the 38 revolver, uh, their their short barrel load, the 135 grain jacketed hollow point plus P that Ernest Durham put together at the request of uh, New York City Police Department, has been very well proven on the street. And I've actually switched to that now for all my uh, little 38 backup guns because some of mine are the ultralights, and the ultralights, the old lead 158 hollow point plus P we used to use, recoil is so violent it can pull a lead bullet forward out of the cantaloupe and it kind of prairie dogs up out of the cylinder and locks up the gun. Uh, the 135 plus P, I've never even heard of that problem, let alone encountered it. 
it is extremely accurate and it gets the job done. So that, that's become almost my exclusive load now for the 2-inch 38 that I carry for backup. Master, you make me look good because I ask a, a simple question and you like <laughs> go into great detail and make it sound like I knew a little something about what you were just talking about. we got to do this more often. It's a great interviewing skill. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. All right. It's that. I'm used to get paid by the word, Daniel. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know how that is because usually I'm writing instead of talking, and, man, that's getting old quick. All right, holsters. Now, I know that you probably have different holsters that you like for different guns, but, you know, kind of generally speaking, most comfortable, most practical, fastest, uh, inside the waistband and outside the waistband. Uh, for me, usually, for inside the waistband, it'll be uh, one of the two that I designed, uh, either the ARG uh, from Mitch Rosen. It was originally called a Ubria Guard, and um, after 9-11, he changed that to American Rear Guard, but of course, it's the same holster. And I designed it to carry a full-size, full-weight pistol and lever the butt forward so it wouldn't print out the back yet still be very fast. Uh, the other kind of predated that, uh, back when Ted Blocker was running Ted Blocker Leather, uh, he and I came up with an inside the waistband holster for full-size fighting guns. It had a Velcro tab that made it with a Velcro-lined dress gun belt. And I really like that, and I wear it a lot, because it allows you to adjust for the height of the belt, which is typically on the hip with jeans or BDUs, but at the waist and the suits that I have to wear when I go to court. So you just adjust the holster and the gun's always in the same place. Uh, for outside the belts, it'll vary. I wear a lot of Kydex now. The, uh, the FIM is one of my favorites in the, uh, with, with the Glock pistol. And with a 1911, I'll often wear a Kytac by Dave Elderton. Well, I don't have that. I don't have as many answers to the question as he did. Um, right now I'm using the Acre flat side holster for my uh, XCM, which works really well. I use that for my Glock, too, a similar holster. Um, when I carry the 1911, I use that that's yucky slide. Yeah, uh, Galco. Yucky slide. Galco. Actually, yeah, it's a nice slide for the 1911, which I carry sometimes. Then... There's nothing quite as cool as being with a woman who carries a Colt 45 automatic. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and then sometimes deep, deep concealment, I'll use a belly band. And on occasion, for dress up when you wear the foofy pants, you can wear a nice ankle holster. You know, I've thought about uh, you know trying the belly band. Because I think when I get back, you know, for running and doing other things and exercising and just summertime carry, I'm, I'm really looking into it. I've been looking at it for a while. But I haven't got one yet. Uh, the Walther PPS. Uh, I like the way it feels in my hand. And I was thinking a belly band for that, you know, for going out running and uh, doing things. Kind of opened some, some more opportunities for me to carry. Uh, but, you know, like, people ask me about holsters. And, you know, I don't have much experience with it. And that's one thing that I, I think that uh, I'd like to get my hands on some more and try them. Uh, because when people ask me about holsters, you know, uh, Crossbreed sent me one to try. And, uh, you know, I love the crossbeat. That's my first and only inside the waistband I've ever had. And, you know, I love it. I'd modified it a little bit. And I think Gail made fun of me before about using my Dremel tool because I love a Dremel tool. And if, yeah, the holster yeah, does, no yeah, and if my holster doesn't work perfect for me, I can t cut out some stuff out of it. And, uh, you know, my Safari Land ALS that I carry for outside the waistband, 
Uh, I dribbled that just a little bit. I had to knock out a little bit of stuff to where my thumb would hit the little uh, release button a little bit faster. Uh, I really like that holster. But uh, there I've had obviously some outside the waistband holsters that I didn't care for as much. But uh, you know, I'd like to you know increase my experience with uh, you know different types of holsters and, and see what I like more. I think that's something that uh, you know I'm kind of lacking on. I guess you could say. So what do you guys like for outside the waistband? Oh, mine was outside the waistband I was talking about. You know, it's harder for women to find holsters that fit. Especially, I don't think a lot of women, some do, but uh, most of the women I know don't carry inside the waistband. Yeah. But a lot of the holsters are way too high up for women. You have to find one that's a little bit lower because it ends up in your armpit. You know, our waists are in a different place and we're kind of shaped a little bit differently. Much nicer, Lee. Thank you. So you got to find one that is a little bit lower. That makes any sense. Uh, it does, and uh, you know, I've um, I've recently started looking into paracordsecrets.com, where you can order Kydex and start shaping it, and teaches you how to do that. And I've thought seriously about starting making magazine pouches and holsters for myself, and seeing what works for me. And if I find something, you know, throw it on my website and sell it. It might be like a a year or two down the road, but it just you know, kind of a hobby. And, you know, as much as I love the Dremel too, it, it sounds like a good time to me. You know, bake a little Kydex or whatever, and then cut it up a little bit. You know, it sounds like fun. It's something I'm thinking about doing. What's the saying, Daniel? Give a man a Dremel and something will end up in shavings? Yeah, but it's so much fun, you know? Yeah. Also, I... Nicholas Wild Turkey, a Dremel tool, and a gun, and you're set for hours. I know. I admit I've got one, too. All right. Um, all right, now here's the usual. Glock or XD? Now, I understand that they're both good guns. You don't even have to preface that or anything. Does Eric listen to your podcast? Does what? Does Eric Shelton listen to your podcast? Uh, I think so, yeah. Okay. yeah. He Actually, he does. He always emails me about something, if I say something crazy or whatever, yeah. That's just a little rib at him. Because we know he's <laughs> <laughs> very strong opinions about that. Well, you know, I say, well, my XDM came from the custom shop, too. And our friend John Strayer, the custom shop with the blue flames on his looks really sharp. But, you know, I don't think it's XDM, XD, XDM, or Glock. I think it's XDM and Glock. Because, you know, I have them both and I love them both. And I go back and forth. You know, it depends on what, what kind of, what I'm in the mood for, what kind of match I'm shooting. And it just, you know, I don't think it's one or the other. Okay. I think, I think a lot of it's personal preference. Uh, uh, the Glock came out sooner, so, of course, I've been shooting and accumulating Glocks longer. Uh, right now, I've got probably, what, 14 Glocks and 5 XD. Glocks are us. But I, I do find myself carrying the Glock more often. Um, the trigger reach, I think, is better, at least for my hand, and this is all going to be subjective, on the XD. The point characteristics with a grip angle are a little bit better for me with the Glock. The uh, manual safety option on the XD45 is something I like. And when I do an airport run, by which I mean somebody's going to drop me off at the airport, my guns for the trip are in the suitcase already, so I don't have to you know, pull over and make a scene at the airport packing them away and unloading. So I just give them my loaded gun to bring back and hold for me. And for that, that's uh, the, the only time I ever carry max gun style, just the pistol shoved in the waistband. And for that, I do the XD45 with manual safety. Uh, that plus the grip safety simply takes away most of the usual danger you have of carrying a gun in that position and that style. 
more often, though, I, I will be carrying the Glock. One advantage to the XD, uh, more so than the XDM, really, and more than most other auto pistols, is you have standoff capability. The, uh, the recoil uh, spring guide extends slightly ahead of the barrel, ahead of the muzzle. And if you have to jam the gun on the other guy's belly and pull the trigger, it's not going to go out of battery like most other auto pistols will. So each of them has their strengths. Each of them has their weaknesses. Uh, they're both very reliable guns. Pretty close in accuracy, though. The uh, my experience is the 357 Glock and the uh, 45 caliber Glocks will generally tend to outshoot the others in the brand and will be a little bit more inherently accurate than most of the XDs I've shot. Glock 30. <laughs> the, the Glock, if I could only keep one of my Glocks, uh, honestly, I think it would be the Glock 30, and probably today it would be the SF, 30 SF. Nice. Uh, the pistol is just extraordinarily accurate. It's utterly reliable. carries like a Glock 19, and you've got 11 rounds, 25 ACP. I've literally won matches for the thing. Wow. Um, you know, as I haven't owned many holsters, I've owned a lot of different pistols. And, you know, I've owned three different 1911s, one incredibly expensive one. Uh, never owned an XD, which I'm sure I will one day. But, uh, you know, the Glock, it just, it outperforms in reliability than any other gun I've ever owned. You know, I know it's going to eat whatever I feed it, and it's going to fire, and it comes out of the holster. I know when I pull that trigger, I'm going to get a bang, and I'm going to get continuous bangs after it until it's out of ammunition. And that's just, for me... That, that settles it for me, and I actually uh, got to the point, I like the, the 1911, you know, it feels so much better in the hand, and it's just so much tighter and smaller, and uh, it's thinner, but the, uh, you know, the Glock having that, I know it's going to happen, I know it's going to fire, I know it's going to work, so I trained to love it, you know, and then I, I've actually, as I did that, I realized that, wow, this is just the balance, the way it recoils and gets back on target, the way it always fires, uh, this is this is the one for me, yeah, and that's kind of, I guess, what sold me on it. They're both excellent weapons. You won't go wrong with either one. Uh, I do find myself using the Glock more often than, actually more than any other pistol, really. Well, like you said, in usual Masada Ayub fashion, you answered the question 100% correctly and said that it's definitely subjective in nature and it depends on the individual. Okay. Yeah, it's just like boxer shorts or jockey shorts. You're always going to like one or the other better and no, no other guy can ever tell you which one it's going to be. Yeah. Get <laughs> uh, <laughs> Rings up underwear. Uh, okay, Mossberg 500 or Remington 870? Me? No. Either. 1100. <laughs> Wait, what'd you say? I'm sorry. You broke up. She just got the Gordian knot for you. Say again. Remington 1100. I, I didn't give you that choice, though. I know, but that's the answer. <laughs> How much does that cost retail? Why don't you just tell them, like you tell me, pump guns, they're so 20th century. That's true. Actually, 19th century. But yeah. I think an automatic shotgun, much better than that pump shotgun. And the 1120 gauge, it's, it's a great home defense weapon. It's a great all-around weapon, actually. I've used it to shoot mistletoe out of the tree. That sounds like a good time. Why would you do that? <laughs> you should be, like, standing under the mistletoe. Well, that's why I get it down to stand under it. I hear you. Okay. It's just in a thousand pieces, right? So you can hang it all over the place? Yeah, get it down out of the tree and hang it in the house. 
much more fun there. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. All right, Mass, how about you? Since since oh. you're since you're old school, you probably do still like pump guns. Oh, he still <laughs> likes his Oliver's. <laughs> I to most people I recommend the auto. Uh the pump takes a lot of habituation. Uh in the choice between the two guns, you've got the I think personally the better ergonomics with the Mossberg mechanism. Uh particularly the self pause and most particularly for for any sort of ambidextrous shooting. Uh, we can teach you a right-handed grasp that will keep you pretty well covered with a pistol around the left side barricade. There is no analog for that, as you all well know, with a long gun. And if you're going to go shoulder to shoulder, the, uh, the, the high-placed thumb safety on the Mossberg is going to be more natural, more reactive, and easier for most people to work with. Uh, using the middle finger to hit the uh, slide release behind the trigger guard is also easier for most people than hitting the slide release up in the front on the Remington. Uh, the Remington, as a rule, will be a better made gun and will have a smoother action. Uh, reliability, durability, in the old days, I would have said Remington without question. Uh, today, the Mossbergs are coming through pretty decent. And we're, we're just not seeing problems with them. So, again, it's a coin toss. Uh, it used to be economy would favor the the Mossberg, but with the Remington Express line, they're really very close to one another. And, again, it becomes a case of try it, handle it, and like the XD on the Glock, one or the other is going to work better with your particular set of, of hand size and shape and length, the habituation that you bring to it and how much you'd have to unlearn from one system to go to the other. But either one of them is going to get you through the night. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the, the controls are definitely what I like about the Mossberg 500 more. But the, uh, you know, you talked about price. Man, I guess the Mossberg realized they're making good guns now. Because when I first bought a Mossberg 500, I was 18 years old, and I paid $195 for one with a heat shield, and I bought a stock to put on it because it came with a pistol grip only. And uh, now those things are, you know, 350 bucks. You know, it's crazy. Maybe you're getting older, Daniel. You know, I don't like that, all right? I, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> Sorry. Consider the alternative. Son. <laughs> What's the alternative? Uh, either death or maybe yeah. you go, go back in time and start over knowing what I know now? There you go. Well, I, I don't worry about death, but when I walked among the living, I did. <laughs> all right. Uh, and then lastly, since you guys, neither one of you were fans of the Mossberg 500 and Remington 870, and Moss, of course, gave the perfect answer again. Uh, how about this one? This is the easy one. AR or AK? Oh. <laughs> For me, AR. AR. ARs are just sexy. AKs are butt ugly. You know what? They got some pretty sexy AKs, like little shorty ones, and then they... I put the Noveski uh, flash suppressor or flash hider on there and stuff, and it's uh, they got some pretty nice stuff coming out for AKs these days. But yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. You know, all around accuracy, AR. When they come up with better ergonomics for an AK and better accuracy for an AK, I'll look at an AK. Right. The other thing is, dude, I'm an Arab American. I try to avoid stereotypes. Where? <laughs> what is your ethnicity, Mass? <laughs> Uh, my paternal grandfather came over from Damascus in what's now Syria in 1896. So that makes you, what, third, fourth generation yeah. American? Uh, third. Okay. 
Well, actually, technically second. My my parents were born here, and I was born here, so technically second. Oh, okay. All right. Lastly, where can Gunfighter Cast listeners find you know both of you guys on the web? Uh, information on the Masada U group. Uh, information to register, find out your schedule, or just listen to your guys' super cool podcast. Well, we're at proarmspodcast.com, and that's a new URL that we got probably about six months ago. And still, you know, a lot of our old listeners have not found us, so hopefully some are listening to your show and will find us. Yeah, we've been trying that, and uh, I see the Gun Dudes posted it, I posted it, and a few other podcasts have posted it on Facebook and around because you guys lost your feed or you had to change websites and, and uh, you lost a lot of listeners. And uh, We lost We haven't regained them all yet either. So, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, a guy called me up and says, hey, I haven't seen a new podcast for a while. I'm like, dude, we changed it months ago. And this was somebody, you know, who knew my phone number who, who should have known better. But, um, yeah, whenever you guys search on iTunes, don't look for the old uh, one with the you know the shotgun and the pistol. Look for the blue background. That's what you guys have now, right? Uh, yeah, the blue background. It's the Pro Arms podcast. Yeah, it's got the in there. Uh, <laughs> guys, get on there, iTunes, and find it. Get back in the show. Yeah, really. And we're on Zoom, and we're trying to get in that. Um, we're trying to get in that. What's that? Blackberry. They have a new marketplace, place, but we haven't heard back from them yet. I really haven't and, seen that, and uh, I need to look into that. I try to get in all the. Yeah. Have to apply. I guess they have to approve you by hand, and it takes forever. We're also on Roku. If you have a Roku player, you can listen to us on your Roku player, which is very cool. And if you have Boxy, we're there. We're everywhere. Just find us. Yeah, and then Google, Google Pro Arms Podcast. You'll find it. What and for Masada U Group, we're at masadaugroup.com. We've got this, the training schedule there. We've got... Um, no class descriptions, where we're going to be. We have a mailing list. You get on the mailing list. You get a kind of maybe every month newsletter update. On a blog. On a semi-regular basis. Mass has a blog at Backwards Home Magazine. If you go to backwardshome.com and look in the left-hand column under blogs, click on his name. There he is. So he's on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Um Pro-arms. I'm not on Twitter. My name is on Twitter, administered by Gail. Mass don't. <laughs> so when is Mass right. on Facebook? All right. When is that going to happen? Not have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> you got Daniel, you got to understand. To you, it's a computer. To me, it's a typewriter with a silencer. <laughs> he writes the stuff, but then i got to go put it in all these places. So I don't have time for him to put Facebook and friends and all that stuff. <laughs> if you get on my Facebook page, you can get to him. You know, I got a theory on why Mass isn't on Facebook. Why the reason, that? the reason he's not on Facebook is a problem that I run into all the time when I'm answering questions on Facebook or I'm posting comments on Facebook. I run out of characters that I'm allowed to use when I'm posting things. Mass has no short answers for anything. Because <laughs> he covers all bases. And... Facebook is not geared toward people like Masada Ayu, so I don't think yep. it's going to get along with it very well. No, I'm short and sweet, so I didn't even know you could run out of spaces, because I've never run out of spaces yet. Actually, there's you a are. 450 character limit for when you're posting the status or something. It's ridiculous. That's funny. All right, well, uh, you know, that's uh, pretty much all the questions I have. Is there anything that I didn't cover that, you know, you guys want to throw out there about Masada Ayu group or anything that, uh, you know, would... 
help the right. listeners better understand what they're getting into whenever they you know sign up? No, I think we're good on that, brother. I think the uh, the website will do that. Uh, thank you for having us, and we're looking forward to doing an interview with you for Pro Arms Podcast. I you know I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys for coming on the show because uh, you know even though I had to get up pretty early, uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. We did too. We did too. Whenever you get back to the states over here, you got to come down to Florida with us. Well, I, I told you, Gail, but you guys sound like you have a lot of fun. But uh, you guys got to give me a uh, a gunfighter cast out, though. Uh, all right, well, that's it for uh, you know episode number 33. Thanks for listening. Gunfighter cast out. Gunfighter cast out. <laughs>